I remember something that made a big impression on me. This was in like 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. I was back in Canada at a family dinner. Mm-hmm. There were people there that I didn't know. Um, there were two guys there, probably younger than me, 20s. They seemed kind of like sort of suburban punks of mm. some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, might be fun to talk to these people. Uh, and just in chatting at the beginning of dinner, I think I mentioned I was studying architecture. Uh, and one of the guys was very interested in that. He's like, oh, I really like architecture. I'm, I'm getting, I'm studying it a bit right now. I'm really interested in it. Mm. Like, oh, what kind of architecture do you like? Well, I'm really interested in English country houses. <laughs> and I thought, English country houses? Why would like a Canadian lower middle class sort of punk guy with lots of tattoos be interested in something so like stodgy as that? You were uh, you were out of the loop, Matt. Yeah, and as the dinner developed, I realized, oh, this guy's a hardcore alt-right psycho. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of my first like confrontations with like a uh, Trumpist, full Trumpist alt-right kind of figure like talking about cultural Marxism. You hadn't really kind of stuff. experienced the alt of the right. Exactly. And it, and and this was like this love like, for full consum- postmodern Yeah, and this love for sort of conservative ruling class culture was apparent with my take is that that was this guy's return to authority after, you know, listening to Jordan Peterson and imbibing yeah. all this kind of uh, reactionary material. So that's a pretty good cross-section of what right-wing architecture right. might yeah. be. <laughs> I like that. Welcome back, everyone, to Street Sweeper. I am Ricardo. And I'm Will. Uh, And today we will continue discussing what is right-wing architecture. We've basically established that from these examples that you could say that classicism is right-wing both in the neoliberal way. There's both a liberal right-wing. Right. And a conservative right-wing right. classicism. Right. But classicism is is bad, basically, in both examples, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. And we've already established that modernism, a certain kind of modernism, is bad in Starchitecture and, right. and in Schumacher. Right. Modernism, quote-unquote. Yeah, we were working with the, the interior design magazine. Yeah, just a formal. Stylistic formal, duality. Yeah, yeah. So you want to make a dialectical shift in how... I mean, this, this, this duality between liking cheapo versions of classicism, classicism or, or like pastiches of it, yeah. um, and modern art is kind of established in um, like respectable, progressive uh, cultural milieus uh, already in the 1930s. I, I think it's a foundational uh, text about it. Is um, Clement Greenberg, the important 
socialist uh, art critic mm -hmm. in 1939, right? Who writes the um, the uh, article "Avant-Garde and Kitsch," mm. and he explicitly argues th this is one of the earliest, most clear examples of even the term "avant-garde." Although I'm not going to be right. going into that, like "avant-garde" wasn't really used as a term uh, particularly until the. Uh, I would say 1960s, 1970s in reference to the... Retroactively? The, the, the 20s and 30s period, yeah, yeah. retroactively. Um, it, it's very rare, fairly rare to see that term being used uh, uh, before World War II, certainly. Um, but uh, it establishes avant-garde and it establishes kitsch as its opposite. And it's essentially about this duality of forward-facing versus backward-facing uh, cultural forms. And, of, and it makes a connection between that and politics. Mm. From a, this coming from a socialist guy right. uh, who associates modernism with progressive politics um, for several reasons. Like at the time you have effectively uh, modernist um, art and architecture is mostly aligned with progressive politics, although there are exceptions like uh, early architecture, uh, early fascist architecture in um, Italy. In Italy, although that changed very quickly, also to yeah. uh, uh, sort of postmoderny versions of classicism. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, the um, like Italian modernist architects and futurist artists and etc. were sort of pro-fascist to a certain extent. Uh, yeah. To a, and fascism sort of embraced that in the beginning. But uh, that's kind of a tactical arrangement that mm -hmm. didn't last very long. But it, it's fairly rare, general terms, for that to happen. Uh, usually um, what Greenberg would be calling avant-garde would sit on the progressive side of politics, would be either socialist or aligned with socialism since the greatest explosion of... Uh, what we today call modernism really happens in the Soviet Union, in the early right. Soviet Union, um, and in Weimar Germany. So, so, so between socialist and social democratic, welfare state, blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. uh, and even Le Corbusier, who uh, perceives himself at a certain point, actually a lot, uh, like tries to get work from the Vichy government yeah. after 40 yeah, uh, like French he's collaborationist. Yeah, he's, he, 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 he doesn't have a consistent political ideology. He wants no. to work for the Soviet Union, then he can't. He does for a bit, then he stops. Then he wants to work for the Vichy government. Like, it's just whatever. It's a pure mercenary. A pure mercenary. But he's not a mercenary in, in, in architectural ideological terms. He's committed to mass architecture to solve the housing problem, right? Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't know, doesn't understand the political economic structures wherein that is or is not possible. So he just looks for symptoms. And in, and in that specific historical <clears throat> context, that was the best way to be a mercenary was to put yourself at the service or try to lead that right. kind of social transformation. Yes. That's where the discipline potentially had its greatest power and greatest opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you would categorize Western modernism as it is emerging at the time as essentially social democratic. It's not very complicated. Just go and fucking read Tafuri. Uh, although Tafuri wouldn't place that under a critical light. Like, is social democratic therefore bad because it's not revolutionary to accept capitalism? Um, I mean, and can... even facilitates the continuity of capitalism by uh, producing the typical, like, the radical theory of the time. You can You can just read the Athens Charter and he just talks about how, like, 
the problem with cities is that private ownership of the land prevents its use for the public Athens good. Charter is better than social democratic. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's borderline socialist. Yeah, yeah. But it it explicitly says we need to abolish all private ownership of land. Yeah, or at least that there should be eminent domain. The gov- the state in the public interest should be able to expropriate private ownership of yeah, land. But yeah, but like willy nilly. Yeah, uh, as yeah. whatever it. So and the central contradiction of cities is private in, p- private yes profit versus yeah. public interest. Yeah, that the, the text of the Athens Charter is tending towards socialist revolutionary yeah. uh, in in terms of political economy. Of course, uh, Corb is a moron in terms of understanding politics, and so he goes and tries to sell that text that he personally heavily edited. Like it's yeah, it's yeah. a collective authorship text. Yeah, you can't give him credit. For... It's it's presented as his by him yeah, because by he's him. the one who privately then publishes it for the wider public. And he goes and tries and sell that text to fucking bankers and real estate speculators <laughs> because he because he sees them as like agents of modernity, industrial development, and blah blah blah. So right, so we, he he's extremely naive politically. But the, but anyway, whatever. Point is, there is a kind of an underlying progressive uh, ca- character to the politics of what mod- modernism means at that time, yeah. or, or what Clement Greenberg is here talking about, uh, calling avant-garde. He's not talking just about architecture, he's talking about art in general. And then there's the uh, kitsch. And kitsch is just fascism. Right. Kitsch is the, the what fascism does. Right. Like the paintings of German folk in there. Yes. Like yeah. uh, peasant gear in the yeah. humble. Yeah. 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 Hitler uh, in a suit of armor waving a <laughs> swastika flag. Yeah. In, in, in a like a like a shining medieval yeah. crusader, yeah, um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, you when you like being Portuguese, I this, there is a truth to this. I uh, equate this with the uh, like fascist slogan of the Portuguese fascist regime, right? Uh, which I guess I could roughly translate as um, uh, the Portuguese are a poor but honorable people. <laughs> uh, poor but honorable is like yeah. the uh, yeah. Uh, like a simple, humble folk, right? Right. Uh, who are fine in their poverty, uh, and that's okay because that's like their authenticity. Even mm-hmm. of course, we could then extrapolate how much the contemporary liberal framework re re contextualizes and yeah. internalizes fascist ideo- historically fascist ideologies uh, in the postmodern period. But that's a much broader, com- complex um, discussion. That we can also do another episode on, but um, but yeah, like definitely the kitsch kitsch aesthetics are a signaling signal these mores, these reactionary mores, right? Uh, that are the tactical cultural politics of fascism as a uh, as at what the it beginning was of the twentieth century in the yeah, yeah in the first half of the twentieth century as, right. as, it, as it historically emerges and develops. Um. It's not universal, of course. Um, fascism also has suffered tra- tactical shifts, especially when it lasts very long, like the Portuguese one that only ended in 74. Right. And, of course, Portuguese fascism didn't have the same aesthetics in the 1960s uh, and 70s as it had in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. Um, it was enmeshed in... It was part of the general political economic environment of a welfare state and a broader uh, European... Uh, context so 
parts of that penetrated uh, the mm -hmm. Portuguese society as well. But uh, which is why uh, another example of why we should be leery of uh, making an excessively simplistic um, association between form and political content. Yeah. But my point is, as um, you have a socialist art critic making this explicit duality in a sophisticated way, um, which does match the incredibly unsophisticated modern versus classical uh, style uh, yeah. interior decor magazine. There is some relation that between the simplistic argument and the sophisticated one. They, mm -hmm. they cross-contaminate. It's not as easy as we usually yeah. can be argued that well, that's just dumb shit. There's no point talking about it. No, it's, it's embedded in culture and it, it's... Tactics are important. Um, at the same time, this, this is happening. Um, you also have the Soviet regime shifting from um, modernist architecture, you might call it that, like constructivism. Constructivism, constructivism is a trend. It was the dominant trend until... Uh, 31. Um, but starts shifting away from this for several complicated reasons, but essentially is a kind of a process of, of intensive debate within the architectural uh, and artistic cultural circles in the Soviet Union, in which there is significant democratic uh, collective debate. Um, very lively, like in public newspapers, everyone is calling names to each other and saying, this is what we need to do. And uh, uh, in the, like the co congresses and uh, conferences of architects and of the several groups and publications and et cetera. Um, and uh, there is a large scale attempt to implement modernism uh, through, as part of the transition to the planned economy after 28, the implementation of the five-year plans, mm -hmm. and an attempt of accelerated uh, economic industrial development, yep. particularly heavy industry in the beginning. Um, and uh, so you have like construction of hundreds of uh, industrial new towns, um, and uh, the you need to develop the fundamental principles of planning for these kinds of economic development, right? Which is really a scale and scene uh, of like large-scale investment with uh, common, more or less universalizing principles of urban planning that you, you possibly doesn't have a parallel in Western, in what we might call the geographical region that we today associate with the West since probably the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, and that the, the planning principles of that is modernism. I mean, it's, 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 it's essentially... Athens Charter style uh, concerns and planning principles that are developed by the constructivists and uh, others, right. um, and they are implemented as the, in, as in twenty nine, thirty, thirty one. You start building these industrial new towns. You start having serious problems in implementing. So you start having serious problems in implementing those, right? Um, and uh, at the same time the planning principles in constructivist ideology come married with um, notions of collectivist living. So a dissolution of the family unit uh, and um, essentially reduction of uh, the private quarters of uh, worker, family, worker families to just the individual bedroom and then everything else is shared and there is no more 
family. It's clearly an attempt to dissolve the family and create a collectivist way of life, which is very poorly received by the overwhelming majority of these new industrial workers, which used to be peasants. Uh, so there is a kind of an element of class, of, of culture war there between a kind of uh, progressive cosmopolitan urban architects who are trying to pursue this, uh, as they perceive it, Marxist-Leninist ideal yeah. of dissolving the family and constructing a new collective way, a communist way of life. With, with an underlying Marxist theoretical point of Absolutely. reorganizing production, domestic Absolutely. production. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, feminist as well. Yeah. Um, uh, the dissolution of uh, gender, uh, the gendered division, division of, of domestic, uh, of reproductive labor. Yeah. And, um, and also co connected to that, uh, the notion of the dissolution between the of the difference between the city and the countryside, uh, also very yeah. much kind of an underlying Marxist, uh, Leninist uh, position. Uh, but these, this doesn't really function uh, in the particular concrete context or in which uh, the Soviet economy is modernizing and developing and specifically the, the people that you are working with, uh, peasants with, uh, which, who in the context of the civil war, um, the revolutionary war and the civil war have lost pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. It's a massive destruction. Like it's, it's, uh, after 1914 until 1921, R Russia never stopped being in a state of incredibly destructive war, uh, either against foreign powers in World War One or as uh, in the Civil War, and being invaded by foreign powers that all of the other yeah. foreign powers also. Um, it lost several million people. The overwhelming majority of the um, Russian industrial working class, which which constituted the bulk of the Red Army. These are yep. the, like the industrial working class are, is, is the pop section of the Russian population most dedicated to the revolution. And they, therefore they are the ones who are volunteering to serve in the Red Army. Um, about 95% of the industrial working class of Russia dies between 1914 and 1921. 95%. <laughs> um, and and the um, and a very large portion, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but a very large portion of the infrastructure is also destroyed. Yeah. So you have essentially the you, like the political problem of the revolutionary uh, leadership at the time is, well, I mean, this is supposed to be uh, like the, the industrial proletariat is supposed to be the vanguard of the working classes. Yeah. And Most ideologically have, and theoretically yes. educated, and 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 uh, who ha who have through the material experience of being industrial working class, uh, being all of that, yeah, uh, and uh, we don't have them anymore. <laughs> they all died, so we need to create a new industrial working class. Both because we need that class to exist as a vanguard, we need to reconstruct that reality at, at a social level, and we also need to industrialize. Mm -hmm. So. How do you do that? You mobilize large amounts of uh, peasants who have lost everything during the war. Uh, you mobilize, you give them jobs and incomes uh, as uh, converting them into industrial workers. Give them training, give them lodging, uh, build a massive factory, uh, and get them to work there. And uh, uh, like it's a process of kind of cultural and economic urbanization and modernization. Uh, like the two things are sort of combined, right, of this of society. 
and of these of these populations. And these and these peasant populations are much less culturally progressive in these terms than the industrial working class might have been. Right. And they resist this. They want to preserve the the traditional family unit that they're used to. Um, and so there is kind of big, kind of a complicated culture war between the masses of the, this new emerging working class that is being constructed and the uh, avant-garde collectivist architects who are trying to impose a new cultural order on a for their own good on a population that wants to resist this element of this cultural element of the revolution. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's a very complicated discussion at the time. And at the same time, you have the fact that all of the technology, concrete construction, glass, blah, 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 all the flat roofs particularly are terrible. The early, uh, early on, the technical capacity to actually build in a modern, this kind of modernist um, architecture is extremely pro problematic. It, like it, it just leaks everywhere, it's, yeah. et cetera. Um, so you have a series of technical Fail, failures and uh, social resistance. You have elements of uh, like young uh, architectural students coming from precisely these very same peasant classes, having access to higher education in Moscow and Leningrad, going to university and studying under these uh, more cosmopolitan, uh, pre-revolutionary, but avant-garde and uh, pro-revolutionary uh, teachers, the constructivists, for example. And you have these, these uh, new architects join these contexts and they embrace the avant-gardism for a time of like these kind of utopian images of a new world that is more equalitarian and more developed and it promises a better quality of life. But as, as these years go by and as the 20s shift into the 30s, and these actual concrete attempts to build modernism start showing problems. Even architects themselves, particularly these younger generations from a working class background and peasant background, start shifting away in their taste towards time-tested traditional forms of building. Because you know how that works. The, like the, the classicists teaching uh, architecture in, because uh, they weren't all expunged by the revolution, there was just architects. The classicists teaching architecture in the architecture school, the classicist units, the units with, it had a unit system, by the way. Uh, the, um, <laughs> the, um, the classicist design units start becoming more popular because they felt, oh, this guy actually knows how to build properly. And these mm. guys are just like making shit up. <laughs> that look like yeah, yeah. trying Paper. to make a house look like a factory. Right. Uh, or like it's being very aesthetic and very propagandist and uh, et cetera. But they don't really know how to make that work properly, like the steel and glass and concrete building. This guy actually knows how to lay bricks properly and make sure that everything works fine and it's nice. And it looks beautiful because that's a kind of a pattern of beauty. And why shouldn't the working class have access to traditional forms of beauty that were up to the now reserved yep. to the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie. And so right. you start having this kind of ideological shift happening. There's a, the, the, the typical uh, reading of this period of history in Western historiography is Stalin is like Hitler, doesn't like modernism, crush modernist architects and promote classicist uh, monumentalist architecture. As to, a bureaucratic as a, imposition. Yes. It, like Trump's order, basically. Exactly. Um, to represent the new centralized power of the regime, which is true to an extent because, of course, there is a centralization of power and necessarily a centralization of political power in the new socialist regime in order to enable um, large-scale economic planning. 
uh, although it does have democratic components. It has a, does have a top-down and a bottom-up dimensions at the same time. But more importantly than that, the, uh, the, the, when, when Stalin, quote-unquote, or more specifically the uh, leadership of the party intervenes in this debate, it is to attempt to kind of moderate the debate because it was getting too aggressive between the two sides, like the moderns and the classics, like uh, the, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the, um, the moderne and the, um, and the ancients and the moderns. Yeah. Uh, it's becoming o- overly aggressive, and it's essentially saying there's a room for, for everyone. Uh, we should not fetishize uh, modernity um, uh, for, for, the, for the sake of modernity. Uh, but it, at the same time... Uh, it's very clear from the Soviet policy that it keeps embracing modernism at the level of planning principles, right? While accepting a kind of a shift towards uh, essentially kitsch, yeah, kind of kitsch uh, representation of conventional forms associated with wealth, right? Right. And and you have arguments that, um, for example, Nikolai Milyutin, who is the uh, minister of um, finance uh, of um, in the in the early thirties, late twenties, early early thirties, was a very good friends with the modern with constructivist architects. Uh, he was a big patron of the arts as well. His ministry, like the first modern apartment building, in the in the sense that we understand it as an apartment building in the modern sense. Um, ever built is the um, um, Narkenfin, designed by constructivist architects Moise Kinsburg and Ignati Milanese. Uh, it is a housing project for workers of the finance ministry, and the minister himself had a little penthouse on top, uh, which, I mean, yeah, it, it's just like everyone lives in flats, but then he has a penthouse in the, in the terrace. Um, so there's still a kind of a hierarchical thing going on there, although it must be noted. At least he's living in the same building as the workers of the ministry. Uh, up till then, the Ministry of Finance was living in a massive palace in the center of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In center of uh, St. Petersburg. Um, whatever. Point being, this guy is a, is a pro-constructivist, and as this debate in the 20s, this building is built in 28, as the debate goes on in the 30s, like in 32 or 33, I think, he makes a... a uh, he's makes a quote that is actually fairly famous. Um, makes a statement saying that uh, why shouldn't the people have the right to columns? Right, right. And this becomes kind of emblematic of what is being discussed at the time. Um, so, in many ways, there is a certain bridge between what, what the, the the socialist regime is saying there um, in the 30, in the transition to the thirties and as the thirties go on. And of course this continues until basically the late forties and, uh, what this design article is kind of saying as well, like we yeah. should, we should give people the yeah, right the to people have a, have a right to. Yeah. So, and, so it is well. ambiguous and complicated because of course, I think the argument that this design article is making is reactionary, mm-hmm. but I don't think that what the socialist regime is doing in the 30s is reactionary. I think yeah. it is a complicated step that has conservative reactionary elements in cultural ter- ter- in cultural terms, but in a broader political sense of what purpose it's serving, yeah. it's part of progress, Yeah. right? Um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people will have a problem with me categorizing the Stalinist period as being part of progress. 
<laughs> but I, I, I do think it needs to be acknowledged that that's part of it. Um, well, and even in, in how people read, I mean, people, especially uh, Western left, Western Marxists, um, socialists would by and large tend to think of the Stalin era as a rightward shift. Yeah. I mean, going back to the debate between Trotsky and Stalin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, then Trotsky. Socialism in one country was a right opportunist move. Yeah, Trotsky's position Trotsky. is clearly, uh, it's not a position, or it's, it's not a contemporary kind of facile read of Stalin equals totalitarianism and regression. It oh, was, yes, it became that later. It I became guess. that later, but Trotsky's position is, it's a rightward deviation. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's abandoning uh, straightforward um, revolutionary position. Internationalists. Like, yes, yeah. uh, in favor of like tactical um, alliances that uh, are not necessarily revolutionary. Yeah, but then in the in the early '30s, when the question of collectivization is being debated, then the right uh, is actually against Stalin. And the Stalinist position is to pursue collectivization. Yeah, and that Stalin and Trotsky were in absolute agreement, as w as with the transition to uh, the, transi the the abandonment of the new economic policy and transition to plan the, uh, uh, to five year plans. This was this was an agreement. It, it, it but in the in the thirties, the the rights actually ended up al allied with Trotsky, um, because the original critique of the socialism in one country program was that the Russian peasantry wasn't advanced enough to support a revolutionary program right. on their own and they needed the support of Western, the Western working Western class, which was more... industrial working class, yeah. yeah. Um, so in the debate on collectivization, the later, like beyond abandoning the NEP, in the debate about how fast to pursue collectivization or whether to pull back on it, the rights and Trotsky end up in a kind of an alliance. Mm. And so you... so. So in the in the context of the of the 30s Stalin is is on the left where Trotsky right. and the right uh, opponents are um in the united opposition or whatever are on are on the right. right and then when Khrushchev initiates the change towards like what we would think of as just modernist architecture like concrete towers pure functionalism whatever right. That we might think of as a leftward turn in architectural terms, right. embracing the modern movement's right. architecture. But that's understood from a Maoist perspective, let's say, as a right deviation right. Right. Uh, from, from a more right. revolutionary right. Stalinist position, right. non-revisionist right. position. Right. So it's all completely, even within socialism, it's a no, highly uh, contextual... We're talking about, yeah. Here we're talking about left and right within, within a socialist position. Yeah. It's yeah. completely different meaning from... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but absolutely. The, but the political significance of these tendencies and how they, how the cultural tactic lines up with an economic strategy, uh, are highly ambiguous. Yeah, even in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, I, I would even, I would say that I personally simultaneously agree and disagree with the Maoist critique of a Khrushchev. Right. Right. Shift. Um, which is essentially, I mean, at, at an economic level, the fundamental thing that's happening is a shift from investment in heavy industry to investment in light industry to produce consumer goods. Right. Um, that is the bulk of it. Yeah. Um, Housing. At a domestic level. Yeah. And um, in, in, in the context of um, 
of housing, this means that up till then, the priority was build the factory first. Right. And then we'll figure the workers' housing afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> what we need to do is just steel and electricity and tractors and uh, tanks, obviously. Yep. So we, we are producing means of production. And we'll see about increasing uh, the conditions of life and more consumer goods later. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, that's the priorities, heavy investment in heavy industry. Um, of course, mass prefab housing, it counts as heavy industry, but it, it, fa it, it, it falls into this shift towards, no, now let's actually solve the housing problem. Yeah. Right? Let's actually finally address it through mass production of consumer goods, uh, even if that means house, houses, flats. Right. Um, in that context, uh, however, what you see in the Khrushchev switch is essentially a dissolution of the very discipline of architecture itself. Right. Like right. you basically tell architects, you people are concerned about houses being beautiful uh, and having columns or not. Both constructivism and uh, monumentalism is stupid. Yep. That is the position. There's no rehabilitation of constructivism. Constructivism is also overly, overly aesthetic. Overly aesthetic. Yeah. The, what is denounced at that point is aesthetics itself right. as right. the central concern. Yeah. And indeed, the institutions of architecture as a discipline are dissolved. The Academy of Architecture is dissolved. The uh, Union of Architects is dissolved. Uh, and they're all integrated into broader institutions of the construction industry. So architects... Uh, like the uh, the Academy of Architecture is moved towards a more kind of polytechnic right. framework, and the um, uh, Union of Architects as workers is integrated into a, a broader Union of Construction Workers, right? right. Which you know, which is basically run by engineers. Because so it's a, it's a it's a more radical version of the institutional shift in welfare state architecture. Yes, towards the public building sector. Yes, this yes. is happening. Yes. Like Yes. And of course, from the liberal position, this denial of aesthetics and dissolution of like architecture as like the ex free expression. Like, at this time, the freedom of expression of architects was Stalinist monumentalism. Right, right. Architects right. wanted to express themselves yeah. through making bu beautiful buildings. Yeah. And here comes Khrushchev and says, go fuck yourselves. The people need housing. The, the people need housing. Yeah. Architecture is not for you to express yourselves; it's for the people to have better lives. Yeah. Um, and he's here echoing the constructivist critique of art as an institution. Right. Right. As like the the avant the historical avant-garde critique of art as an institution, like art is a bourgeois practice where artists are expressing themselves uh, in the service of essentially a thing that is the art market, where this expressing themselves thing does not really exist outside of that. And uh, our goal is to destroy art. And replace it with something else. Replace it yep. with like a new form of culture that is appropriate well, to and I, modern and I, socialist societies. And I wanted to say, like, apart from the the larger political, like Maoist political critique of of Khrushchev in that turn, Maoist architecture from the Cultural Revolutionary period was also hardcore functionalist. Yeah. So it was actually the same architecture. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, none of these works under the simple. Uh, yeah. Simple form to political content association. Yeah, yeah. And here I want to quote uh, a communist, a self-described communist uh, architect and architectural critic 
who wrote very nicely about this, and I agree with the majority of what he says here, um, by the name of Leon Creer. <laughs> <laughs> Leon Creer, well-known uh, classicist, yeah. conservative uh, yeah. architect, British architect. The main architect for Prince Charles in Prince the Charles. The main architect of Prince Charles. The Poundbury. Yeah. Uh, neo terrible shit. Yeah, nineteenth century town. Not even nineteenth century. I think it's a kind of a, again, it's kitsch in the very yeah. it's like it's it's a pastiche of all sorts of things that might count as vaguely traditional. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's terrible. Um, but he's quite smart. Career is career is career is quite smart, and he has a very funny. I recommend everyone read it. A very funny article. Uh, called Forward Comrades, We Must Go Back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the kind of... That's someone who can... I don't know what his actual politics were in terms of practice, but like he knows enough about communism. He has a communist sense of humor. Oh, absolutely. I I think it would... I I would love having coffee with Leon Creer. I think he would be like a a hoot to to hang out with. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, um, uh, this is from 1981. Uh, I actually don't have here where it is published. Give me a sec. Uh, this is from 1991. It's published in the journal Oppositions, the uh, like neo-avant-garde journal of the American... Yeah, um, East Coast, Peter Eisenman. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's nice that it's published there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, uh, Leon Creer is a big fan of classicist architecture. He does not like modernism. Right. He thinks it's bad, just like Prince Charles. Uh, and he is particularly polemic as a self-identified communist who publishes uh, the um, a kind of a, a monograph on Albert Speer, the architect wow. of... The, the official architect of the Nazi regime, right? Wow. And he befriended Speer. He interviewed Speer a lot and he corresponded with him. Um, Speer, Speer was spared the uh, Nuremberg treatment uh, on allegation of, I didn't know what was going on, even though that was patently false. And he wasn't just an architect. He was also the minister of industry. Like he right. was in charge of actually organizing basically slave labor, Jewish slave labor yeah. uh, in factories. Um, so he was a very good organizer, Speer. He wasn't just a designer, but he was also a designer. And I must say a fairly competent one. Um, in a neoclassical style. In a kind of, I mean, if you look at it, it's, 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 it's really kind of, it's sort of neoclassical, but only in the sense of like, um, that was dominant in the uh, 30s in many different parts of Europe that had nothing to do with fascism. Like, uh, you see lots of buildings in London that look exactly like something Speer would have designed. Mm. Um, depending on context, he can, he, he, when he was doing monumental uh, state representative buildings, they would be more monumental and have more columns. Uh, but it wouldn't even be like classical columns straight up, right? Uh, right, right. It's kind of the simplified, uh, like the fundamental gestures of classical monumentality, but already with some kind of modernization, simplification of art deco Yeah, yeah, thing. a lot of art deco thing. Um, alternated, you use 
these all of these elements tactically uh, in different contexts. But anyway, um, Creer is a big fan of Speer's architecture. He, think it, he thinks it's pretty good. Uh, and he wants to make a clear distinction between uh, what is good about Speer's architecture and uh, the Nazi regime, obviously. Hmm. And he makes an argument that I find it complicated to disagree with, especially if you actually go through his book on Speer and how he identifies uh, very interesting elements in Speer's plan for the modernization of Berlin, which take... Um, you clearly have modernist elements to them, while at the same time uh, injecting into it a lot of what basically are a lot of the kind of post-60s Western, post-modern critiques of uh, problems in modernism, like monofunctionality and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, the solution of the street. Uh, like, any, like if, if Charles Jenks was honest about himself, he would like Speer's plan right. for Berlin, too, right. you know? Um so Creer is just honest about himself. He's a, like a straight up guy. <laughs> and, um, and the book, the, the monograph on Speer is actually really interesting. I, and I recommend everyone would go and check it out. Um, and Creer makes here a point in Forward Comrades, we must go back, essentially on how this association between architectural form and uh, political content, specifically in the post-World War II, re reality in which there is kind of Nazism is the most abhorrent or, Everything ever, obviously, uh, and we should all like that's consensual. We're all in agreement. I'm a fucking communist. I'm in agreement, right? Mm -hmm. He says. But just because some piece of architecture was built under Nazism does not mean that like. And so he he, and so he goes through these points um, and has some really funny, even ways of framing the argument. Uh, and he believes that the, the, the German cities are being destroyed much more by modern architecture than they were destroyed by the war itself. Mm. He has this kind of extremist view on how that's, I, I think damaging. That's, that's been like Prince Charles's critique of London. Yeah, there you go. That the Blitz, that modern did architecture less damage did more than damage what, than the Blitz. Yeah, the post-Blitz reconstruction was worse than the Blitz itself. Yeah. I don't know if that's Prince Charles himself, or, but that's the content, that's yeah, that yeah, debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the, yeah. Yeah, we, of course, post-police reconstruction was public housing for the masses. Yeah. That's what it is. So, the, yeah. And that destroys London for these people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing in, 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 uh, in Germany. But, the, um, but I, I would say probably Korea is a bit less uh, reactionary in terms of, um, um, program than yeah, Prince Charles. Yeah. He would be in favor of, yeah, public housing for the masses, but but in the Stalinist way of doing it. Right. Right? Uh, like columns for the people. That would be his career's yep. fundamental uh, architectural slash political position. Um, but he, 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 he says, in a bitter discussion of the German Werkbund in Dar Darmstadt in 1978, the Austrian architect Hans Hollein said, quote, Fortunately, Hitler didn't have too pronounced a taste for Wiener Schnitzel. Otherwise, they too would be forbidden in Germany today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was, was vegetarianism forbidden in Germany? <laughs> or dogs. Um, the, uh, and then Creer continues, in a similar manner, Albert Speer explained to me that things would be going far better for classical architecture today if Hitler had been a fanatic for modern art. 
Of course, this is an excessively facile argument because, of course, there is a relationship between these Hitler's reactionary politics and this preference for a classic yeah. right. You, like, obviously, the, the, the relationship is there. It's just cannot made mechanically. Architecture is less relative than Wiener Schnitzel. Yes. And so he complains that of, of, of the uh, systematic destruction of all of Speer's architecture as kind of part of the denazification campaign is the destruction of the public works of the time, even though they were perfectly fine buildings, in his opinion, uh, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so we, he, he concludes, um, there is no neither authoritarian nor democratic architecture, no more than there are authoritarian nor democratic Wiener Schnitzel. Uh, it is just as childish to read a particular color or the imminence of a political system into a row of Doric columns as it is to accept kidney-shaped tables and tensile structures as the authentic expression of a libertarian democratic regime. I cannot disagree with this sentence. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, there are both good and bad architecture as well as human and inhuman means of producing and using them. So basilicas were transformed into churches, palaces into schools, and so cities were turned into prisons and housing projects into penitentiaries. And here you start... He seems like he's saying the same thing as Charles Jenks' critique of modernist public housing. Um, architecture is not political. It is only an instrument of politics. I think he's right. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, there is a connection, but the connection is not mechanical, and it is essentially tactical. Right. Uh, form is used to achieve certain purposes in certain co political contexts. And the meaning of that form or the function of that form depends on that context and its use. Right. Uh, the columns, the return to columns in the context of the complicated the, and incredibly tragic uh, investments into accelerated development in the Soviet Union uh, is, does not have the same meaning, the same political content as the return to uh, regency, regency luxury. luxury here today. Um which we see in many different... Uh, we even forgot to talk about um, an obvious other example of yeah, this, which yeah, is yeah. the uh, New, London, New fabulous. London fabulous trend yeah. that I think is extremely problematic. Um, yeah, and, that, and even to make a direct comparison, which was made at the time, obviously, between Trump's order and uh, the Chinese ban on quote-unquote weird buildings. Right. Right? Um, Trump and the Chinese regime are talking about the same architecture when they say that it is bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they're talking about, they're talking about contemporary what, architecture. Con yeah, contemporary weird shapey stuff. You can call it modern, you can call it weird, <clears throat> you can call it whatever. Yeah. Um, which is the same architecture that there is a, as we began this discussion, there is an increasing, after 2008 particularly, an increasing left critique of it yep. as being associated with the economics of neoliberalism. Um, but of course, what when Trump is doing this in the US and when the Chinese are doing this in China, they're, they're, they're talking about the same thing, but they're not doing the same thing. Um, in the Chinese context, I mean, I, I suppose like everyone who has that argument that modernism is uh, the architecture of cultural colonialism should be sympathetic to the Chinese position yeah, on banning kind of this Western neo-avant-garde style that explodes in China, especially around the Olympic Games. 
and this and this cuts to the the ambiguity or the contextuality of nationalism in general. Like uh, yeah, Western chauvinism, imperial nationalism, yeah. is different from anti-imperial, yeah, anti-colonial from, nationalism. From, from, and, yeah, exactly. And definitely from like my limited experience um, talking to like Chinese students about this kind of architecture, they describe some of them describe like a a perception in China that Chinese architects, Chinese architectures being excluded by the big Western firms, um, design firms that come in and build all the prestige projects. Right. right. And like there isn't really space for Chinese architectural growth. Yes. And a space for Chinese architects. But also the position that the Chinese, the, 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 the Chinese ban on weird buildings has is not a return to Chinese classicism. Right. There is an element of that. Like, there is a notion of like architecture in China should embrace being Chinese. But this is, but it also needs to be modern at the same time. It needs to be looking towards the future. It needs to be developmental. And in fact, it is extremely interesting if you actually go into like, this was, this was amply discussed uh, when, when this ban appeared. In 2020. In or... 2014. Oh, that was in 2014. This was in 2014. Oh. Um, I mean, it's the, the, this, this discussion began in 2014, right? Uh, the um, the um, Xi Jinping makes statements about like these ugly and weird buildings uh, don't serve us, and uh, we should stop like importing this Western bullshit. Um, and then continues over time, but the actual ban is in 2021. Okay. Uh, but the ban. The ban is in a document called the 2021 New Ur Urbanization and Urban-Rural Integration Development Key Tasks. Typical socialist <laughs> name for a piece of legislation. <laughs> 2021 New Urbanization and Urban-Rural Integration Development Key Tasks. <laughs> it's a nice socialist title um, for a law. And um, made by the National Development and Reform Commission. And if you actually go through it, it's really interesting. Like the key task, it essentially has three key uh, categories of what needs to be done. Number one, build low carbon green cities. Mm. Number two, prom promote domestic garbage classification, waste incineration, and waste treatment. Okay. Point three, improve wastewater network. All right. Like... These are the fundamental. This this piece of legislation is about sustainability. Yeah, and infrastructure. Yeah. Um, then, you, if you look at the actual like document, uh, like chapter by chapter, I, I can read you the titles of each of the chapters. Uh, uh, so, promote the orderly and effective integration of the architectural transfer of po population into cities. Mm -hmm. Um, improve the carrying capacity of urban agglomerations and metropolitan areas, enhance the ability of central cities to radiate and rise around the areas, blah, blah, blah. So it's about the, the, the priorities of development, of new city building, uh, of maintaining... Of, it's, it's, it's a problem that China has been going through of yeah. uh, urbanization taking over agrarian land and have try, trying to maintain a certain balance yeah. in that while, while making sure that uh, rural exodus to the city yeah. is like sustainable. 
um, promote the coordinated development of large, medium, small cities, small towns, uh, accelerate the construction of modern cities, improve the level of urban governance, uh, urban-rural integration, and all of these from a framework of uh, environmental sustainability. This is the core of the document. What the only thing people talk about this document is it, one sentence near the end where it does talk, say, uh, implement the applicable, economical, green, and beautiful architectural policy in the new era, strictly limit the construction of super high-rise buildings above 500 meters, and strictly prohibit the construction of ugly buildings. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so it's not the same as Trump's order, obviously. No. It's in a, a radically different context for radically different purposes. Uh, but the, from the like immediate kind of liberal defense of neo-avant-garde self-expression, stylistic self-expression, self self it, 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 it reads as the exact same thing. And it was covered by Western media, Western architectural media, and Western media in general as being essentially the exact same thing as Trump's order, right? Yeah. So, Which makes sense when, like, the British architecture industry gets, like, 30% of its business outside of Britain. Well, and yeah. this, this is, like, a direct attack yes, on, of on their foreign capital investment. Of course. Anyway, how do we end this episode? <laughs> We wanted to cover Schumacher. There's a, a debate. This is this was going to be one of our first episode ideas, actually. Right. Um, the debate between Patrick Schumacher and Mark Foster Gage from a few years ago. We just think it's so symptomatic of a lot of the ambiguities and yeah. sort of dialectical reversals that we like to talk about. We were going to include and that. And specifically on what does it mean to be right-wing architecture. Yeah. Right? And we were going to cover that as part of part of this episode. We can make that a, um, a specific separate episode. Yeah, we'll probably have to make that a, yeah. another one. And I'm sure we'll return also to some other examples of right-wing architecture um, as we go. But I think we've established that it's not as clear-cut as it may seem, um, that you always have to focus your attention on the political economy of the architecture and less on the form. The classicism is has all kinds of different. I mean, we didn't even talk about like Aldo Rossi and his defense of right, Stalinist right, architecture, right, or, or right. how like he he reproduced that architecture, but without the without, without the socialism, the good parts? Yeah. yeah, like just not in socialism. Um, we can do a whole Rossi, so much, yeah. Rossi to the Gary uh, the uh, Bilbao effect of Aldo Rossi one of these days as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll definitely return to this. Um, but we thought it'd be fun to include this, like a debate on right-wing architecture. Since we spend so much of our time focusing on like a critique of liberal architecture um, and problems and contradictions within liberal or like left architecture, uh, we thought it's important to set our sights on uh, right-wing architecture. So we spent most of our time today talking about the Soviet Union, about liberal cuisine <laughs> articles, and about, <laughs> about Leon Greer. Uh, but yeah. Them, them's the stakes. That's that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yes. <laughs> so I, I I think we have successfully established that. I mean, I, I, we haven't established what right wing architecture is particularly well. <laughs> <laughs> We've established what that what it isn't, I guess. 
I don't even know if we've established that. <laughs> I think we've established that left architecture, at least, is when the people have the right to prefabricated columns. Yeah, yeah. Housing. Mass housing, mass cheap housing plus quality. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever the people that think that is. <laughs> yes. So, Ricardo Bofill, then, the, the most left-wing architect. Ricardo Bofill <laughs> is the most left-wing architect. He started Brutalist, so... Yeah, yeah. So no one should have a problem with that. No, no. I'm sure, I'm sure we could have a nice coffee with Leon Creer discussing the merits of Ricardo Bofill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... We'll continue this attempt to talk about right-wing architecture. In the meantime... Tell your friends to listen to our podcast. Tell all your classmates before school ends. Unless it's already <laughs> ended, I don't know. Um, Check our Patreon. Yeah. Become a patron. Uh, Patreon.com slash StreetSweeperPod. That's right. Uh, and if you already are one... Uh, Really, does leave, do do leave us a comment? There, there, we have a pinned post there, open for patrons to comment on questions or comments. Tell us what you think right wing architecture is. Yeah, please do, and we'll talk about it. We'll we'll uh, we'll address it in the in the show. Yeah, whether you like columns or not. What do the people deserve today? Yes, yes, exactly. Maybe it's powdered wigs. I don't know. It's not up to me to decide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The people shall have their That's voice. at least the, a point we've made. It's not up to the architect exactly. to decide. <laughs> All right. See you next time. See you next time.